0: On the record, with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PWC
1: on News Talk. Busy weekend. It is a bank holiday weekend. 20,000 women are running the streets of Dublin in the mini marathon. Good luck to them. Of course, a lot of it was cancelled due to COVID, so it's great to see that event back on. But it has meant getting in here at all has been a Herculean effort to some of our guests. We've had Lewis has been delayed, and there's been no darts until nine o'clock. So <laughs> everyone who's got in here deserves a prize. But let's look at this morning's front pages for a bank holiday, which traditionally is kind of a downtime. They're reasonably, reasonably lively. Let's start with the Sunday Independent, which is talking about batting down the hatches. The public expects a recession. Now, are the public right? Because strangely enough, economists don't expect that. But the fact that the public... Believe it's going to happen is very important in itself because it'll have a dampening effect on the economy more generally. There's also a political poll coming along with that, and we'll discuss that in a second with some of our guests. There's also a headline over on the right hand side of the Sunday Independent Family Fury at Helen McIntyre's Handling of Killer's Move. We'll take a little bit look at that later on as well. Let's look at the Business Post. They've got an interesting story on the left-hand side of their front page from Daniel Murray. It says, government to consider new tax breaks for landlords, smaller landlords, it emphasises. So this seems a bit of a change in the sentiment towards the landlord sector. A huge number them have left the sector, 25,000 fewer landlords since 2016, says the story. So in order to reverse that, they will now be incentivised to charge cheaper rents in turn for being tax-less under proposals set to be considered by the government the Sunday Business Post or the Business Post has learned. So this is an interesting twist. As you know, landlords have been complaining about their tax treatment for quite some time and a lot of them aren't too happy with their rent pressure zones either but it seems the government is trying to incentivise them. Uh, We don't really get huge amounts of uh, detail on how that might look but it's an interesting proposal nevertheless. One, if you want to get irate this morning, there's one on the right-hand side of the front page. DAA asked, Aviation Regular later for short queue bonuses. So the shorter we keep our queues, the more money we need to be able to reclaim, is the suggestion of the story from Peter O'Dwyer which is very interesting after a disastrous week reputationally for that particular organisation. And there's one down the bottom by Killian Woods talking about the whole row over data centres, which are gobbling up huge amounts of electricity capacity. Uh, Fingal County Council, in their latest development plan, are looking to curb and restrict those data centres. And probably, I suppose, somewhat predictably, Amazon, which is a big operator of uh, data centres, is not too happy in a submission they've made there. The Sunday Times. We've got a picture of Joe Schmidt across the top of the page, which is interesting. He's no longer the Irish movie manager, but he's there. We've got long COVID can lead to trauma and depression. This is a story from Lynn Keller. She says research carried out on the Matt Hospital in Dublin has found significant evidence of brain related neurological and psychiatric conditions among Irish patients with long COVID. Uh, and some of them are drinking more regularly to deal with what is effectively PTSD so it's it's a very reputable um, author of the study, Professor Jack Lambert, who is a well-known consultant in infectious diseases. So this whole question of long COVID is certainly not going away. Down the bottom of the page, the fallout of the Lisa Smith trial is being teased out there by John Mooney. He's talking about um, she made some extreme anti-extremism videos in an ISIS camp. And we also have uh, Willie O'Dea. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. He's in the Sunday Independent. But... We are talking about, there's a lot of travails here for Fine Gael uh, and Fianna Fáil, and in a number of the parties. Both parties won't be happy reading today's Sunday newspapers. The Daily Mail is saying four out of five Fine Gael TDs face a dogfight for political survival, with some ministerial heavyweights also in danger of losing their seats. And who's making this uh, prediction? Well, it's Michael Ring, who is a former minister with the party. He's crunched some numbers. The report he's compiled has been Kind of gobbled up here by the Mail on Sunday. John Dredden is the journalist with it. Um, talks about various constituencies and the party's ratings falling and various people are coming into a sort of zone of danger because of these latest poll ratings, which I suppose echoes what's going on at the Sunday Independent, which has the main poll. So both parties, a bit of infighting, as said. Willie O'Dea, we'll talk about him in a second. General atmosphere for the bigger parties as the Sinn Féin surge continues. They're up in the latest poll about 35% that's been a trend for several months now and no sign despite what you hear from the larger parties have been kind of generally saying oh this will top out or this is kind of a temporary blip type thing it is certainly not and we'll talk about about that in a second with our two guests who as I said have been incredibly heroic to battle their way in sort of planes, trains and automobiles part two both of them have come in here and have uh, digested a lot of papers in a shorter period than usual Uh, one of them is Michael Clifford who is the special correspondent with the Irish Examiner you're very welcome along Michael Thanks a Good morning it. to you. And also an amazing journey to get in here at all. Um, she's come in all sorts of places, circuitous ways in here, but taxi men were employed to do all sorts of um, acrobatics to get her in here, but she is here in front of us, and that's Gabby Gavetchkaita. kaita She is the um, political reporter with Independent.ie. She's a regular uh, guest here on News Talk on a number of programmes. So you're both very welcome. Morning. Prizes for both of you getting here. Um, let's start off with, I suppose, Michael, we'll go to you first with this um, battening down the hatches headline. Yeah. in the Sunday independence now economists say we're not going to be in a recession they're, they're reasonably sanguine about it but the public taking quite a kind of more grim view of our economic yeah. prospects Before
0: addressing that I mean, I, and thanks very much for <laughs> your words on how difficult it was to get in but I thought I'd be cancelled actually this morning I thought you were going to bring in a, a troop of psychologists body language experts and, and lip readers to analyse the handshake
1: Oh we'll be coming to that <laughs> we'll, we'll have a bank of people getting onto that so hold your horses for that one <laughs> Yeah uh,
0: down no, the hatches this is based on the opinion poll uh, in the Sunday Independent you know, the regular opinion poll reputable opinion poll anyway it's saying that uh, 70% of people believe that a crash or recession is coming within 12 months uh, also the, the main issue with people is the cost of living crisis followed naturally by the housing crisis which is with us for a long time and uh, that's the general thrusting. interesting piece inside by Kevin Cunningham who's a pollster an academic and he's talking about that quandary as you mentioned it between what the public think and when it comes into conflict with what the experts think, particularly when we're dealing with things like economics. And it is a very interesting scenario, but I think, and you you referenced it yourself, uh, sometimes the public, uh, as as De Valera once said, the public have no right to be wrong. But as (laughs) as it turns out here, that uh, irrespective of what the actual predictions are, the public could dictate the way the economy goes particularly in relation to if there's no confidence there they're not going to be spending and that'll be a self-perpetuating thing that'll go downwards. so it, it, it is a bit worrying from that point of view most interesting thing I thought in the poll was this I thought it was a bit ludicrous to ask it but it is interesting in terms of confidence in leaders the, 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 the leader that has the most confidence in Ireland at the moment is the Queen of England
1: I know she's pretty popular <laughs> apparently I don't know whether she's popular or our own political leaders are unpopular they're slightly different things I suppose not much surprise at the bottom on that page should the CEO of DAA Dalton Phillips resign 53% say he should he's probably happy enough that it's only 53 after the week they've had but Gabby I mean in terms of this overall poll I mean talk a little bit about the parties if you wouldn't mind in some senses there's not a huge amount of change that's the problem with polls we don't get these big kind of gyrations or, you know it's not that dramatic but there is that trend mm-hmm. that which is Fianna Fáil and Fianna still kind of Stuck in quicksand.
2: Yeah, so just looking at it here, I think you know. Um, so in terms of the leaders, I think you've just to say that Mary Lou McDonald is on forty five percent. Uh, Micheál Martin is on forty four, and then Leo Rat is on thirty eight. Eamon Ryan on twenty one percent. In terms of the state of the parties, Sinn Féin roaring ahead, thirty five percent. Fianna Gale at twenty. Fianna Fall at seventeen, which by the way is a big improvement from where they were, dwindling down to you know eleven percent, um, a couple of months back. I think that in fairness to Micheál Martin in the past couple of months, and this is certainly a sentiment that's been said uh, by many in th- of those in Fianna Fall, is that Michael Martin has really come back a little bit. You know, he's he's really taken the reins. Obviously, he's leading the country to, through better times now and, you know, with the end of restrictions and coming out of the pandemic. But, you know, they're definitely much more happier with him than they would have been, um, you know, even, even a couple of months back. I mean, this time last year, we had talk of this famous... You know, heave that never that never happened. Um. So look, I think it's I think it's no surprise that Sinn Féin are are you know still are where they are, but you know, and I say this whenever an opinion poll comes out where they um have a very very good showing is that. We still are, we are thinking of an election, but it's still a good bit away. So the challenge for Sinn Féin is to keep that momentum going now for the next two years. To stay on that, you know, 30% and to even build their way up. Um, that's really the biggest task for them. And I suppose, you know, while we have bad news, while we have crises, they can take advantage of that. But, you know, is that going to translate on, on election day? We just we just really have to see. Um, I think the challenge for Mary Lewis leader is to kind of keep... You know that dissatisfaction, the government going and and um, but again, when you're in opposition, it's isn't it easy to criticise that the, the hardest job is being in government, and the reality is that Sinn Fein they've never had their stint in government, so they don't have anything to nobody can throw anything back in their face. I mean, even we saw when um, Alan Kelly made his exit as Labour leader, people brought up stuff from Labour's past and said, well, when you were minister, you did this, and the Labour Party did this, um. Sinn Féin doesn't have that because it was never in government. so They don't look, have
1: a record of government, whatever other records, obviously, yes, in yeah. terms of the context of the Troubles and so on, but they don't yeah. have a record in government. Except in the North. And, and, and yeah, where well, they have been seen as like quite conservative in some ways. When yeah, they, the, in the,
0: the, the, they haven't set the world alight by any means. No, they will claim that they're constrained by two things. One, their alliance with the DUP, but the nature of government anywhere outside, for instance, so that I can observe, the likes of the UK and the USA is going to be coalition in its nature anyway, no matter what it is. And the second in they claim they're constrained by the Exchequer in terms of London. But they still haven't set the world word. That doesn't mean they won't here. They obviously have some talented people here. I think what they do have going for them, which is outside their control, and there's a very good column by Elaine Byrne in the Sunday Business Post today, and that is the fact that Fine Gael have in one form or another been in power for 11 years. Mm. And Elaine Byrne makes a point about that that's in reference in other uh, similar scenarios, tired is a word mm. that comes into mm. it. Are are Fine Gael running out of ideas? Are they seen as being tired? And are they seen as they should be out now for a while? And that, I think, in a scenario whereby particularly Sinn Féin are trying to create this um, opposites of themselves and Fianna being the only two alternatives that
1: again will play into popularity for Sinn Féin but, but do, do Fine Gael can they afford to be slightly sanguine and they might say to, as Sinn Féin draw support from somewhere in other words it's coming from somewhere else whether mm. it's the Labour Party people who profit some of it's come from Fianna Fáil. can Fianna Gael say well as Sinn Féin grow they won't be taking it mainly from us this is more of a Fianna Fáil issue that's who they'll be sucking it from the extra support
2: yeah and I think it's very very interesting to read Willie O'Dea in the Sunday Independent today he's sort of saying look the only way that Fianna Fáil is going is down and you know in fairness you know the former minister has been a very staunch critic of the party Um, but you know Fianna Fáil have this serious identity crisis I don't think that's going to be fixed by the change of leader some people think that it will be Um, you know I think Fianna Fáil ultimately does not know what it stands for and what it really means anymore we had the report by um, Junior Finance Minister John Fleming he, took, he did sort of a post-mortem of the election and, and he came back with some suggestions and solutions. We haven't really seen that go anywhere, really. Like, that came out and that was it. Let's you talk know. a little bit
1: about this Willie O'Dea piece because it's on page 26. It mm-hmm. comes after Barry Cowan put down a motion during the week. So there's a sense of... And if you're Micheál Martin, let's just put ourselves in his shoes for a second. He's saying, OK, the poll's not great news, but it's not disastrous, right? It's OK for mm-hmm. us. And here I have Willie O'Dea on page 26 giving me a kicking without much specifics as Gabby says I mean he sort of says we're not going anywhere we lack a sense of direction or identity and then he says which is very interesting Michael he says I rarely attend Fianna Fáil parliamentary party meetings. Now, you might say William D is entitled to his views, but not attending the meetings
0: is. The yeah, it's, I, I found that arresting, all right, to be fair, you know. It's
1: sulky uh, sounding, isn't it? It is,
0: and the whole uh, the tone of it is sulky sounding in that he's quite obviously somebody who didn't get ministerial office under Mihal Martin. Now, having
1: said that. He also You're not had connecting those two, are
0: you? <laughs> no, it's <laughs> him, him nor Barry Cohn. Having said all that, there is an issue, as Gabby said, there is an identity crisis and the, the evolution of politics in this country from the centre, which is, is what it was for, I don't know, 70, 80, 90 years, largely governed from the centre into a traditional slightly left, slightly right model that you have in a lot of Europe. Fianna Fáil are the big uh, casualties that now the evolution has been going on for a while but it really it really solidified at the last election and, and even more so since they're the big casualties and for example apart from their traditional real core vote somebody voting you'd have to ask why would they vote for Fianna Fáil? you mm-hmm. can see why some might vote for Fine Gael depending on you know right of centre economics or Sinn Féin left the centre what have you and as you say they're they're promising a lot why would people vote for Fianna Fáil in terms of the way things are at the moment and that is a big problem for them
2: Can I just make one? Sm- point in that Leo you can make
1: more than a small that.
2: point you can have <laughs> medium sized point whatever Leo D also says that um, he's, he kind of alludes that you know the, the Fianna Gael parliamentary party meetings the leaks from those meetings you know convey that the party has some notion of its own identity which is fair enough and he's sort of suggesting that maybe the party meetings are maybe a bit livelier a bit, bit better than Fianna Fáil actually the Fianna Gael parliamentary party this week was cancelled because not enough TDs showed <laughs> well, up There you go. <laughs> so right. there you go
1: um, <laughs> but also isn't there something about Whatever he takes of me, on Martin, should he not be going to the meetings? Like his own constituents might might frown at this and say, "Well, go to the meetings, make your views known. That's what you do, right?" Yeah,
2: I mean, you could criticise him, and you could say, "Well, you're you know you're given out. You're not happy with the party, but you're not taking a very active role in." You know, going to the meetings and saying, we should do this to fix it X, Y, Z. I suppose maybe some might make the argument, is he a bit disillusioned? Has he lost faith in it? Um, does he believe that maybe a new leader is the only way that the revamped? But party he sounds like, revamped? all
1: three of us with journalistic backgrounds, he sounds like a colleague we've all worked with who doesn't go to the meetings, who's fed up with life, hasn't been seen around the building in a long time and has kind of hacked off generally. That's what Willie O'Dea comes across God, like. I've him. never <laughs> <been> any met <more laughs> like no, yeah, no. anyone like that, <laughs> <laughs> examiner, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: but and there's another dynamic there too, I would suspect. And that is, you're right, Michal Martin has gone up, I think, in in the public's estimation. Mm. And I think he's doing a relatively good job under the circumstances. But I I would guess that the likes of Willie O'Dea and some of a like mind are of the opinion that Michal Martin is focused on the short term, i.e. between now and the end of his tenure as Taoiseach. Mm. And there doesn't seem to be much of a plan for the party, particularly in crisis mode, Thereafter. Well he
2: has said that he will lead the party into the next election. He's been very insistent on that. He has said that he's gonna take over as Taunichta. But like I think inevitably all eyes are on Fine Gael now. I mean, you know, when you look at Sinn Fein's success, I think in the eyes of the public, when they look at what is the opposite of Sinn Fein, they probably think Fine Gael... Fianna Fáil, maybe they lump it in. Lump, lump you're saying it's, it's polarising left and right. But not more one so, or yeah. yes, one is yeah. the there one is the And also, as a reporter who
1: covers this area, you probably feel that whatever people say about Sinn Féin or Fianna Gael, they have well-known benchers, you know. If you look at Fianna Gael, they have the Covenys, the Harrises, um, Leo Varadkar himself. but They have a lot of well-known household names. Mm-hmm. Sinn Féin, likewise. Okay, it tends to be very presidential with Mary Lou Macdonald, but they have mm-hmm. Pierce-Darty, etc. Oh, no, Brin. Then you kind of go to Fianna Fáil and you kind of go, there's Micheál Martin there's Michael McGrath and then you're sort of struggling a bit I mean that may be just my personal perception obviously of Willie O'Dea here but mm-hmm. they don't seem to have as, on their bench doesn't seem um, as strong would, would you get a well, sense of have, that
2: they have Dara O'Brien who's Darryl a housing Bryan. minister which is of course an exceptionally difficult portfolio and Minister O'Brien would take you know he comes in for a kicking very often because you know we have the, a serious housing crisis you've got Stephen Donnelly who's the Minister for mm-hmm. Health but he who, he, he generally doesn't, doesn't get a good press doesn't right doesn't inspire <laughs> a lot of people so you know Fianna have the difficult portfolios they're doing their best I think Michael McGrath in fairness to him he's seen mm. as quite a reliable uh, politician and you know they've taken on all the difficult portfolios we know this is a cabinet reshuffle coming you know the big I suppose what we want to see is will Fine Gael take over some of those more difficult portfolios just to allude to John Vennon's piece in the mail on Sunday you know the four out of five Fine Gael seats are in danger I mean, that is the biggest red flag. And in fairness, if you take a look at... I was talking to actually a party source about this during the week. If you take a list of all the Fine Gael TDs throughout all the constituencies and you go through them, issues crop up in terms of, okay, well, that TD has been a TD for, you know maybe a couple of decades they're kind of coming onto their age, maybe they want to retire now, completely fair enough. But then the question props up and the question is, well, what are they, who's going to replace them? Mm. And you've got, you know, your Helen McIntyes and your Simon Harris is okay, their seats are safe enough. But, you know, the reality is, is that that's gonna be the challenge now for Leo Varadkar's party leaders. Where do we get all of these new TDs out of? Of course, there is about you know, there's those extra seats up for grabs um, because of the numbers and population rising. Um, if you if you look at the latest census. So we are gonna have space for new TDs, but the question for Leo is gonna be who's going to fill them if Fina Gale managed to land them.
0: And you're back again. By the time the next election comes around, they've will been in power for fourteen years, uh,
1: thirteen or thirteen years anyway. I wanted to, Michael, also ask you about the issues that people are interested. Right? Yeah. Okay, we've got inflation, right? So that's no big surprise. Sixty-two percent describe that as an absolute priority. Housing, I suppose you could roll it in at the same point, right? Absolutely, it's a yeah. form of inflation. But look down the bottom, right? Which is <laughs> you've got right down the bottom one percent. Covid nineteen, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, so whether it's coming back or new Why variants, the public are not interested, they're, right? There are people
0: just like today about long COVID and that, so you yeah, know,
1: yeah. So I mean, that's interesting. You've also got like a societal change. That's the education. Apparently, virtually nobody's interested, in, if you believe this poll. And you've got climate change again. People not gravely moved by it. Only twelve percent. So mm. I mean, what do you think? I mean,
0: climate change to me is the big issue because we've a serious disconnect between. What we're told and what all the experts suggest is required, and what the public are willing to put up with, particularly in the current scenario with inflation, and 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 cost of living crisis, and what the government are willing to lead on as opposed to follow. I mean, I think it was yesterday's was it the Irish Times. They said that in terms of the carbon limits at the sectorally, they're going to have to go for the high end stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I can't see any of that happening, and at the same time. Is climate an existential crisis? And if it is, are we going to do anything about it? The
1: public, yeah, yeah the public seems to be saying yes, it is, but not quite yet, as far as they're concerned. Yeah. Seems to be the
2: well, you know, I think the issue with, with climate change is that you will have certain politicians and certain members of the public that it is the hard line, steadfast, number one issue for them. But when it comes to not being able to pay your bills when it comes yeah. to not being able to put food on the table. And then you have the issues of the carbon tax. Okay, the carbon tax per month, it's very low. I think it's 1 euro forty or something extra. But like that's one euro forty on top of everything else. And so, and then you have this talk, of course, about retrofitting homes. Okay, that's very important. That would in the long term work out to be practically free because the government's giving you all these grants. But if you're doing a full home retrofit, you need about 20 grand. Yeah people just don't have the money for it like that's and I think I think the issue with climate change of course it is so important and it is we're told one of the priorities for the government but there's never a right time for it because we had the pandemic and people kind of forgot about it and now we have this cost of living inflation crisis seems like the public are expecting a recession like they're just not thinking about climate change I agree completely Gabby
0: but what what I'd add though is beyond all that If, for example, say we were in a relatively healthy place at the moment, society Mm. in general, people in general, cost of living, say we didn't have a cost of living crisis, say we were back, for example, in in, in the mid '80s prior to to the collapse, I still suspect that the transformative change that we're told is required and the upheaval that'll mean in terms of standards of living, in terms of adapting, in terms of changing lifestyles, I still suspect even in a situation like that, you would not have... The, the political will or, yeah. or the public will to follow through on it. Maybe I'm all wrong but that, that's... Yeah. And per, and I think a big thing there is selling it is this is not all about pain. It's about what's at the other side and I think there's an issue there in terms of now, communication. Are both
1: of you feeling angry and indignant at the moment, are you? I want you in your best indignant <laughs> mode because coming up next we'll be discussing The Week at Dublin Airport. Now back to our paper review. I mentioned airports. Um, Mick Clifford from The Examiner and Gabby from... The political reporter with The Independent are both here. You're both welcome along. We'll be talking about handshakes and all that stuff, Michael. Just hold that <laughs> thought. Uh, the airport, in a certain sense, the Sundays are feasting on it. They've got different angles. Shane Ross has an interesting um, piece Michael in particular. There's lots of talk about the Chief Executive Dalton Phillips. Uh, the Sunday Times describe him as flying off into the sunset. For those who don't know, he's taking up a new job in Green Corps. I'm not sure his exact exit date. He's doing what CEOs tend to do. They stay around a few years and then go on to the next place. Um, I suppose it's not an ideal backdrop, the sense that the top man is not going to be around for any of this.
0: Yeah, and you know we have a tendency in the media and maybe in public general of personalising things and there's no doubt the book stops with that man, but there more than him involved in the thing, and I, I wrote a column yesterday, and I think some of it's reflected in some of the coverage today. The big issue was. Uh, during the pandemic they were losing money rather than seeking it than, than staying with the course and taking the subsidies from the government they decided to have a redundancy scheme now everybody I think even in the depths of the pandemic we all knew this was going to pass someday soon mm-hmm. yet they got rid of a huge number uh, one third of the staff one third of the security workers and then within months of completing the redundancy progress uh, process they are rehiring again at it would appear less secure and, and, and cheaper um, cost of labour in that respect and I think that's a huge element of the problem and to be fair that was even signed off by the board of DA, which included worker representatives and by the minister as well but I, I, to be honest with you you couldn't blame the minister for not pulling them up on the specifics of, of a scheme like that but I think a huge amount of it goes back to that it's basically bad management and it's also indicative of this trend in some parts of commerce to ensure that the the cost of labour is cheaper mm. and that you're, therefore for the workers there's less secure jobs which is a worrying kind of thing. And remember, and Jean Kerrigan makes reference to this, these are frontline workers. A couple of years ago, we were all, yes, frontline workers, we must treat them properly and doesn't seem to be the case here
1: and Gabby uh, the the whole issue of blame and who gets blame you can blame Dalton Phillips you can blame Eamon Ryan who seems to be uh, sort of below the radar on this The Minister for Transport there's two interesting pieces on the Sunday Independent who tease out this blame idea one is by Shane Ross the former Minister for Transport Mm. uh, who talks about his dealings with Dublin Airport Authority and then there's a piece by economist Colin McCarthy below that who's saying this is not one to blame the politicians this is a you know, kind of an arm's length commercial body, commercial company with its own board. Yes, the minister does appoint people to the board, but why are we blaming the politicians? They know nothing about cues. So, so where yeah. in terms of talking to the politicians during the week, which I'm sure you were, I mean, they don't have much leverage over DAA because as, as we've just said to Michael, the CEO is leaving anyway. So, what can they really do in terms of getting leverage on this body to do what they want to do? Not a whole lot, I would have thought.
2: Yeah, I think um, I think Colin McCarthy kind of calls for an internal uh, review to be taking place within DAA, which I'm not sure how that helpful would, how helpful that would be. But we did report during the week, um, the Irish Independent, myself and my colleagues Hugh O'Connell and Philip Ryan, about this split that has emerged between politicians and civil servants where... You know, this, this debacle is the latest in a series of controversies that we have seen now. You know, starting off with celebrity civil servant Robert Watt, the Department of <laughs> Health. Um, you know, Tony Hollihan, who pretty much was the the Taoiseach of the country during the pandemic. And now we have Dalton Phillips, who is the head of the DAA. Um, you know, where things go wrong and politicians seem to sort of be caught blindsided because they didn't know what was happening or they had no say over it and actually in the background it's would see sec gens and these um heads of authorities that are really running the show um and 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 politicians seem to be sick of it you know they've they've come out and they've said look this is unacceptable the way it's going on and and there seems to be no repercussions really you know for 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 any of these civil servants um an example of such a scenario was uh, Fianna Fáil, T. T. John McGuinness, I was reporting how he felt that he was reprimanded this week because he received um, a letter from uh, a senior civil servant within the Houses of the Oireachtas because he over, um, I think one of his, so he chairs the Oireachtas Finance Committee and I think he went on for 45 minutes over and he got a letter from the Secretariat being like, look, you know, this is not acceptable because... They didn't have very much time to clean up, and 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 McGuinness hit back saying, "This is micromanagement, and you know it's the doll, doll committee. We have a job to do. Sometimes we have serious witnesses in. You can't just cut them off halfway. They're here to give um, evidence that's in the that's in the public interest. And I think the story keeps rumbling, rumbling, rumbling on, and 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 it asks the question of. Who is really in charge? Is it the politicians that we vote for, that we elect, that we that go off, that form governments? Um, like, are they in charge of their departments? And even in this DAA debacle, you know, I think you're right. In fairness, Eamon Ryan has kind of emerged really like scot-free. I think um, Hildegard Nocton has sort of been very good in taking the lead in all those meetings. But, you know, is it really going to help? Like, I was traveling last Saturday and it was the first time I had ever seen queues outside of the terminal to get into the Dublin airport like it was just shocking and now they've set up a marquee which to me is kind of scary because that impl- that implies that the queues are going to be there for a while well, yeah, the queues well, shouldn't be there at all outside what, of the terminal what, are, what you know? it really
1: irks me is that when people say and you hear this all over the place on the radio oh well it's happening in Britain as well or it's happening mm. in mm. Spain or Portugal frankly I don't really care about who's exactly. Portugal yeah. but why can't we be the outliers who did better than the other places but Michael getting back to the point Gabby makes there which is who's who's to blame who's got authority here who's the, the name and lights to take the rap on this I mean we set up these companies we, we're told they're arm's length they're, they have independent boards or independent operational identities but then sort of when something goes wrong then the politicians are hauled up as God just says. Yes. So so where, where does it drop? Where does the I I, I think to
0: be fair it would be unfair. I think I'd agree with Colin McCarthy in this that it would be unfair to blame the politicians. Politicians can micromanage a thing like a redundancy deal, for instance, as, as seems to have been central to the issue here over the shortage of uh, security workers. Um and Jerry Howland, a commentator, formerly um, an advisor in government, wrote very well about this recently. About the fact of one of the big issues, he was suggesting in the context of Sinn Fein coming into government, but it's a general point. One of the big issues going into government is how to impose your will on the civil service and ensure that the political priorities that you have are driven. Uh, true, and as Gabby was saying, that you know, a huge amount of that, and we can go back on the way the likes of yes, minister and what have mm. you, and and it really demonstrates what a kind of a hold the 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 permanent government has. No, you could well argue that the permanent government has to have some element of a hold on the basis that they are permanent and that the politicians are um, transitional. Mm -hmm. So it's a question of the balance of power there, but it certainly seems in this
1: and in other ways that the the, the permanent government, the civil service, seem to have the the upper hand very much. I mean, we probably shouldn't know any of these people, right? Certainly if you were covering politics in the 70s and 80s, long before your time, (laughs) Gabja but... These people were not known if they were head of a government department. They were literally sort of shadowy, you know, mandarins as they were called like the yes prime ministers. But they now have huge public profiles and they yeah. might be running an agency. I mean, Dalton Phillips probably should not be known if he was, if his company was just running in a normal manner. I suppose the other question is a lot of people could have texting in. <laughs> I suppose it's somewhat Riley saying what cost a living crisis? How come there's 50,000 people a day going on a foreign holiday through Dublin Airport? Mm-hmm. But I mean, it was a very, very telling that the, the restrictions were loosened at the end of January you remember Micheál Martin's speech I'm just amazed the airport didn't make more of an effort to oh. kind of re-energise their yeah. system quicker now you know elder people we've had problems with the passport office I tried to get through to a very leading bank the other day couldn't get them um, you know it's just generally there's this sense that there's not enough bodies in a lot of organisations mm-hmm. at the moment there's skills gaps you see the ads in um, shop windows all over the place so I mean it, it is difficult for the government to sort of say to Dalton Phillips well you you uniquely have made a mess of this when you see all those shortages elsewhere as well, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I would make the point that I would definitely not blame the people that are going into the airport and jetting off wherever it is that they want to jet off. I mean, listen, we've been in a pandemic. Regardless of all that, if you want to go to the airport and fly somewhere, that's your right. You can do that. And also there was a little bit of, and I really don't have time for blaming the public on this, people saying, well, because obviously we saw the big, all the photographs and videos of all the queues, People started rocking up five, six hours early because they obviously don't want to miss their flight. And then, um, you know, sort of people coming out and saying, we shouldn't only two and a half hours before your flight. Like, sorry, if you see the queue is taking three hours, mm-hmm. you're not going to just leave two and a half hours to come before your flight. Like, you can't blame the public on this. And now they're talking about having a special holding pen for passengers. But yeah, um, listen, it, it that is that is the wider issues that we have uh, massive labour shortage and you're right Emmett like every restaurant every cafe that you look at they're looking for chefs they're looking for waiters they're looking for bartenders um, and and Leah Radker, I think last week was out saying how unemployment is is you know uh, or sorry unemployment is at a new low and, and, and we've got so many people working but that kind of begs the question of do we have a shortage of workers and is that what we're looking at now is that we don't have people that are are, are going to go and do these jobs look I think it should have been managed better by the airport obviously it's not ideal it's I think I agree with Shane Ross in saying that it's stained Ireland's image it's, it's definitely doing us no favours on the international stage. The other scale. thing that
0: arises out of it is the regionalisation of aviation policy mm. I mean back to 2004 we four we're supposed to split up all the airports There's supposed to be an evening out of debt etc all that never developed the AA took a lead role in the whole thing I, I, I figures there in the paper yesterday practically all the huge increase in air traffic since between 2012 and 2019 practically all of the growth went to Dublin
1: no and also and I'm mm-hmm. most guilty as Dublin born and bred Dublin centric person we say oh well Shannon is you know it's two and a half hours down the road if you ask an American to go to an airport that's two and a half hours away they'd say fine not a problem not but here that, we say we can't do this
0: not only that as somebody said to me the other day a friend of mine in Cork said one of the hottest tickets ah, no, we're not going to Cork though. come <laughs> on <One laughs> the is tickets in Cork as a seat on the bus to Dublin Airport? Yeah, so people go the other scenario. way. Yeah, like you know that, that yeah. people are, and, and you've people tourism down to like of Kerry, Killarney, whatever. Most of the, those who arrive down there come through Dublin Airport rather mm. than Cork or Shannon. And uh, you know, th- there's been no real thought put into a lot of that. It's been allowed the market to allow to dictate things rather than having a serious regionalisation policy.
1: And Gabby, if this continues, sort of drip, drip over the summer, you know, end of June, into July, even August. Obviously, it'll taper off eventually when schools go back etc but do you think the government will just kind of sit there and soak it up and leave Dalton Phillips out there or whoever the new boss of Dublin or do you think they'll and I don't want to raise a hair here I think but do you think they'll like you heard Simon Harris last week saying we'll take action if this doesn't improve or do you think they're just kind of stuck. There should be some, consequences. Yeah, I think I mean, if that
2: there was going to be consequences, there would have already been Like you don't see heads yeah. rolling,
1: you don't see them no. doing any more severe action have, on Dublin but, Airport but Authority. Sorry,
2: when have we seen heads exactly. rolling no. in the civil service? Exactly. Literally never. No. Look at all the controversies that we've had even over the past year. There hasn't been one head to be rolled. We, ha- we see political controversies erupt and we see politicians resign in some cases. But there has never been a head rolled at the civil service and I don't think this time is going to be any different. And I also want to make the point that yeah, which I found actually quite interesting. We'd never heard of Dalton Phillips before all of this because in the media, it's normally, I believe it's Gray McQueen. He sort of does mm. media relations. I think there was Kevin Collinan as well mm. that he came out this week. But Dalton Phillips, that was the first time that we saw him in front of an Oireachtas committee. We, we wouldn't normally hear him on the airwaves really at all.
1: No, and they didn't quite land a punch, the politicians. They, they sort of had a bit of a go and they worked themselves into a ladder. But I'd say from his point of view, he probably came out going... I'm still intact. Got my new (laughs) job in Green Corps. I'm okay, right? They didn't quite pin him,
0: really. No, it it was very much. uh, I'm here to reflect public anger rather than Mm. down to specific. No, in fairness, some of them people like Duncan Smith. I think Labour TD, whose constituency it's in. have been into the detail of the type of employment contracts and that kind of thing that has been going on over a long period at Dublin Airport, which is back again, I think, one one of the big issues there in terms of the way things develop. But was there much there to get a, a, a hit on, I wonder, at this stage, you know?
1: Like, it's national infrastructure. Imagine if you had Dublin Port. I'm just switching around. It's not It's not a, a, an outlandish uh, example. And all these boats were backed up and goods coming through. We, we'd all say this is completely unacceptable. We can't mm. get food. We can't get... But for some reason, we've almost become normalised to this Dublin airport thing in the last week or two. It's kind of like yeah, they didn't hire enough people and it's the summer, what do you expect? You know, I think there's a slight, we're not outraged enough about these things. It's a personal thing. We have Kevin here texting in say, hi all, hi all. The government can't be directly responsible running the airports in the state. If they were, people would be cribbing about the micromanaging the sector, which is picking up on your point a little bit, Michael, about who who runs these things. We haven't heard much from Michael O'Leary this week, which was surprising. <laughs> so I surprising. He'd be, What's going on there? This is a it's new co- co- vow
0: of And the outrage, I mean, that's nature of our culture at the moment we get outraged we move on mm. uh, and we every,
1: don't do accountability we yeah. don't yeah. do go, accountability go, the
0: housing crisis the most obvious example go back to 2016 17 there was this genuine public outrage of people sleeping in the street at at, at families being raised in hotel rooms yeah. it moved on is there any less of that at the moment not really but i think and okay so some of it it's down to the media but then the media very often reflects or leads or, or, or tries to interpret mm-hmm. public attitudes and wonder is, is it accurate in that respect.
1: Now I'm going to give um, Gabby and make a new job after the break they'll become royal correspondents for a second as we talk about the Jubilee events across the water. Yeah just to answer one of our texters I'm nothing against Cork Airport just to dispose of any hint <laughs> or suggestion i have anything against Cork Airport or the city of Cork. Um, well, let's talk about some very interesting developments all over the other side. Of the Irish Sea, which is the Jubilee Festival, which just the Platinum, Platinum? <laughs> it seems to be going on for quite a while. That's all I know. Four or five days of incredible, um, I suppose, celebration marking the Queen the royal family as an institution and so on Mick Clifford from The Examiner is here with me at the moment to discuss it he's, gonna, he's, he's known he's notorious for his interest in royal affairs <laughs> he's, he's, just, he's known all around the city as the man you would need to talk to when royal issues come up and another person is Gabby gadavet she's uh, from the Irish Independent she's also known for having an abiding interest in the Jubilee <laughs> right folks let's have a quick run over this one Michael I know you've been absolutely glued to the television <laughs> day after day well, with it. your popcorn in one hand and your union jack in the other you've loved every moment of it if I, if I was
0: honest, After the handshake, I was so dazed. I was just sitting there (laughs) looking at the screen what was going to
1: come on last night. You had Henry Shefflin and Brian Cody and the Queen. That's (laughs) been your diet (laughs) for the weekend.
0: I I was watching a bit of that concert. Look, the whole notion of a monarchy to me in this day and age is ridiculous. I I just find it fascinating. We see different cultures um, very often far away from where we are and and perhaps can't relate to them. You know, literally, geographically, thousands of miles away. That's a culture there on our doorstep. And uh, this devotion to the Queen uh, and good luck to them, Jesus, their own business, but I find it fascinating. And uh, now as a person, you know, she's absolutely beyond reproach and quite obviously there's an awful lot of affection for her. But the whole thing was, was, uh, it's kind of fascinating, like, you know, just to to watch it unfolding. And what I found interesting, I only saw a small bit of it, but, and in the papers, nobody is there asking the very obvious question is, this woman has done great service. She's been Queen for 70 years. She's now 96. Has anybody said, do you think, ma'am, is it time to hang up the boots? Yeah, I I mean, what
1: I find amazing is she clearly has health problems. She's saying that herself, she can't attend various functions. The natural reaction you would say as a state is to say, let's scale this down a bit and, Mm. and go with her confinements you know and work with her she can't go to a lot of them let's not put undue pressure on to be at public engagements but for whatever reason they seem to have gone the other way completely they've got to amplify it up there's more events than you could shake a stick at what, what do you make of the whole thing
2: um well i think it's interesting Claire, if you look at the poll on the sunday Independent today she's actually the leader that has the most uh, highest <laughs> ranking in ireland on 50 percent
1: if she ever wants to, to run for office she she's in a strong for, position for a
2: seat. Um, look, yeah, I mean, it's all a big show. That's like that's what it is, really. It's all a big show for, for the telly. All the royals are dressed up in their finery. Um, I'd be largely in agreement with a lot of what Mick is saying in terms of, you know, the monarchy. Um, you know, they're living off taxpayers' money. Like, whatever way you want to spin it, that, that's that's the reality of it. Um, and, I, and I think, so, yeah, you know, Prince Charles has waited so long. I don't think he's the king that anybody wants to see. I no. think the king that people want to see is Prince William and they want to see um, Kate Middleton as as the Queen. You know, they don't want to see, they don't want to see Camilla. I don't think people like her very much, unfortunately for her. She's, she's tried very hard over the years to fit into the royal family, to get the Queen's approval. She's, finally been successful in doing that and um, we know that the Queen wrote a letter and she said um, I believe she, she wants Camilla to be the Queen Consulate that's that what it's called um, so you know she's finally gotten there but I don't think people have much time for Charles or for Camilla especially after the, the what crown What about
1: Banquo's ghost uh, Prince Andrew I mean he's sort of floating in and out of the coverage but then he yeah. sort of got Covid suddenly <laughs>
2: Well apparently he's got Covid and he's sequestered in a room now for the next week so he wasn't able to attend any of the any of the celebrations but it just shows like how outdated the monarchy is you know between what happened with 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 charles and diana and, and and camilla if you look at the scandals plaguing uh prince andrew like these people you know what what? okay what what is it that they do every day they go to like fancy little events and they show up and they shake a few hands and they take a few photos and they're great and and listen that works. perhaps that works for some of the english public and that's very good for them but in a modern 21st century setting, there really isn't the space for them. And I think it's accepted that once the Queen, you know, hangs up the boots, that's really going to be it for the Royal Family. And
1: Michael, in terms of the, the backdrop of it, do you think this, the scale of this, this whole event would be as big as it is if we didn't have the bre- Brexit the way we had, if Boris Johnson wasn't Prime Minister. In other words, is, is this kind of a part of a set of events almost? To be fair, I don't think You think it'd be big no matter what?
0: To be fair, I don't get a sense there's a jingoistic element to it as, as perhaps there is with Brexit, I'd suggest. But I mean... It's a soap opera. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the actual uh, the thing on Netflix, The Crown. I actually found that fascinating mm-hmm. because there great, was something. Yeah. It, it it was this is demented, like the whole thing, and even the lives that they have to live. Okay, there's lives of comfort, but geez, you'd wonder what they how, how, how they manage to get through today. Sometimes, and the other thing is, I mean, as Gabby said, it's it's out of date, and you would wonder the Queen notably has been there 70 years when she came in it was a different planet altogether mm. in so many ways that combined with the affection there's for her as an individual would it be anything like it is even in the UK at the moment were it not for her longevity and popularity that if there had been changes along the way and as, as you say once Charles comes in if he does or the son or whatever you'd have to wonder it's going to fade out at some stage you know
1: yeah we'll, we'll have to see what the institution the future is let's get back into the meat of the Sunday papers Gabby because we're uh, we're running a little a bit tight on time as we move towards the break for the hour. I think there is a substantial story that's worth talking about. The yeah. Business Post, a front pager headline reads Government to consider new tax breaks for small landlords. Now, what strikes me as interesting here is that the government have, have had a very kind of ambiguous relationship with landlords. You know, they're often mm-hmm. castigating them. 26,000 of them have left. There is these rent pressure zones, a lot of just ordinary, what they call mom and pop landlords. And we're all obsessed all three of us, I suppose, and lots of people, with the bigger landlords, the big property institutional companies. Mm -hmm. But the ordinary landlord that we'd all kind of know from our teenage and student years have been squeezed out of the market, uh, it seems. Now they seem to be going and rowing back the other way and saying we need to incentivise these people, bring them back into the market. I mean, this is an interesting take, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and this is, I've reported on small landlords even the market for, you know, a long time now. That is a really, really big problem with the housing crisis. It's that it's the landlords that own maybe two or three properties um, you know, accidental landlords that maybe only own one other property um, that they rent out, because of the tight rent controls, that's actually what is pushing them out of the market. Um, I've spoken to experts from the Housing Commission before that have said, if you have tight rent controls, such as, for example, a ban on evictions, such as a rent freeze, over many, many years, what that happens, what, what tends to happen is that these small landlords end up saying, do you know what, I can make a very a nice sum of money if I cash in on the property look at the property prices they're so high cash in um, sell the property now that doesn't mean that obviously there is a first time buyer that gains a home on the other side of it but it does reduce um our housing stock uh, in terms of our, our rental housing stock so it's interesting to see that the government is apparently considering um some sort of a reduction in the tax that landlords pay on the rent that they earn I think it's about 50% now but the challenge here is going to be if you do cut that tax that it has some sort of a reflection on the rents it cannot be seen as we're cutting the tax and that means that the landlord just gets more money at the end of the day it has to have some sort of a downward pressure on rents
0: I mean I'm, I'm a small bit more sceptical of it to be honest. Which I, I, I've seen some analysis that suggests, you know, along the lines of yes, there is unfair treatment between the institutional tax, which is completely wrong, mm-hmm. and the taxes the small landlords have to pay. But notwithstanding that, in terms of return on investment, the uh, rents that landlords are getting, no matter what kind of um, renting place they have, it, it is huge. And, and as opposed to that you have to ask the other question if people are cashing out as an investment on these small properties what are they putting money into that they can get a better return on investment in because I can't think what's out there in that respect so I just wonder
1: about but, but, but Michael the key issue about 68% I think it is uh, have, have ho- we've a 68% level of home ownership so everyone else needs the rental sector so, so they, they, they ha- somebody has to provide it right the state oh, yeah. can do some of it obviously so we need these people in some form it's how they're treated tax-wise. That is the key But is is that the issue? I mean, first of all,
0: exactly how many have left the uh, small landlords have left the private rental sector in the last three or four years as opposed to prior to that is is, is one issue. But the uh, the second one is, is it a question that is tax being reduced in order to give them a greater return on investment? And I'd question that on the basis of it would strike me I would have thought that there's a pretty good return in terms of the amount of rents people are having to pay these days as things are already notwithstanding well, rent pressure zones well, and they
2: Well they're, pay, they're paying over half that on tax and if you look at it you have the rent pressure zones you have all these rules that are in place for them. So I'm not, not going to yeah, spend this yeah, but, but from their point of view they might have the second property that they bought maybe during the Celtic Tiger or whatever they have this apartment two people live in it now and every single year there's more and more rules that come on board and eventually they just say Do you know what I don't care for all these rules. I'm just going to sell it. And that's, That's, I think that's what the government's trying to to, battle here.
1: It's going to be a very interesting piece. Finally, and very briefly, make the, the great handshake between Brian oh. Cody and Henry Shefflin. You're obsessed. What did you think <laughs> of oh, the no, body
0: no, language? I, I think it's going to go into the annals of history, Emmett. I think from now on, if, if somebody is, is approaching things in a matter, in a particular way, people will say, are you a Shefflin or a Cody? <laughs> uh, I think, I, but look, on a serious note, um, the big question, um, Henry, first of all, it seems Brian Cody shook hands with everyone in the field, bar the, the, the losing manager, his former protege, Henry Shefflin. Then finally, Henry Makes the move, and whatever was said, Henry retreated, shaking his head. What exactly was said? I think is is, is going to and obsess generations. If you want
1: to get up close and personal, you can see <laughs> photographs of the two men uh, dodging each other at the pitch side uh, in this morning's newspapers. Both of you, thank you very much, Gabje from the Irish Independent, and Mick from the Examiner. Both, uh, thanks for coming in and making your way through a, a stall course uh, that has all been this morning all over the city. <laughs>
0: On the Record with Gavin Riley brought to you by PwC Sunday morning at 11 on News Talk